Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them. Acts chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 18. Acts chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 18. And I've titled our message today in quotations, we is the language of ministry. We is the language of ministry. Because no one ever serves Jesus alone. We are a part of the family of believers, the family of God. We have been adopted into the body of Christ. And together, we are used greatly by the Lord in these last days. We can do more together than we could ever do alone. And we learn that from God. As he takes us in our own positions and places, and he brings us together in the body of Christ. And it's important that we know and understand that we is the language of ministry. I'm reminded of that time in the life of David when he led the, the mighty men in victory. They went out and they, they left some people at the camp and they took some, David took some guys and he won a great victory. And they collected all the spoils. They returned to the camp and it was David's intention to share everything with everyone. You get the same as if you fought, as if you stayed back. But there was great resistance from those who were with them. And he says, what do you mean? You can't give them anything. They didn't do anything. And David, he, he says, no, no, no. And this was his response. You can jot it down. It's kind of a quick summary of 1 Samuel chapter 30. But he says, who's going to heed you in this matter? Basically going, I'm not listening to you. And then he gives the explanation. But as his part who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies, they shall share alike. And throughout the Bible, we see this pattern, this model of God raising up a team of men and women to accomplish his will on the earth. Each member of the team from the leadership throughout the different roles is vital, important, and used mightily. As in David's example, those that went to fight were important. That was what they were called to do. But those that were staying back to protect the women and children and supplies, that's what they were called to. And that was important for them to do. So equally, as a team, those that go and those that stay share alike. And it was Paul that wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he's pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And that is God's pattern. It's God's desire to work on the earth today. And let's face it, he could have chosen angels. The good angels that chose to be loyal to him, as you read through after the fall, those angels that stayed loyal to him, they never make another mistake. They're never resistant. They're never rebellion. You could say today that angels do exactly what God wants them to do the way that God wants them to do. There's no pushback. There's no lip. There's no flesh they have to deal with. They are, in that case, perfectly obedient to God. But God didn't choose angels to reach the world. He chose you. 
imperfect, that often battles with their flesh, that could say that you're very weak in so many things, very flawed. He chose us. This is a description of us. Not many wise. You, you see, basically, Paul says, you see your calling. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we don't want to start pointing the finger because the Bible's talking to us so that God would get all the glory for the great things he has done. God has chosen to use people to reach people. Even in Messiah, the Savior of the world coming, we learn that he left his divine prerogatives and position in heaven to come to earth in the form of a man. This is God's will. This is how God has operated since the beginning of leadership, his desire to reach. We see in the Bible, God will raise up men and women in leadership, and then God raise up men and women to support that leadership. And that's what we see in Acts chapter six. We've been studying Acts chapter six wanting to be the person that God uses, wanting to understand how even little problems need a spiritual response. They can't just be neglected and swept under the rug. And we find this problem in verse one in chapter six. It says, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmur, murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. They chose these seven men. And notice in verse six, they set them before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We see the exact pattern that God has established where there is leadership, and in this case, men raised up alongside this leadership to help solve this difficult problem. And it's important that we realize we all have our positions and our roles and our responsibilities and that we never serve alone. We always serve together, collaboratively and cooperatively, in mutual submission is what the Bible teaches. And remember, leadership in the church is not like leadership in the world. It's very different. In the world, there are supervisors but in the church there are servants. In the world there's masters, but in the church there are ministers. While in the world they provide the corporate ladder to climb, in the church the way to climb is to go down and not up. I mean, you will never understand the significance of the mantle of leadership until you know and have learned how to take the towel of servanthood and to follow in your master's footsteps. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, in verse 45, he teaches us that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And not only that, to give his life a ransom for many. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 18, if you'd go there with me, Exodus chapter 18. So suddenly this problem arises, a great difficulty comes into the church, although it starts small, 
Even a small difficulty of murmuring and complaining can grow out of control and cause great division in the church. And so the problem comes to the leadership of the early church, the apostles, they learn about it. And as they respond to the problem, what do they say? We need to know our priority, and we do. God revealed to them in a very real way, your calling, pray and study the word of God. And they realized that, and they communicated that. That is what they were called to do. And in response to the problem, they also recognize we can share the weight of this difficulty. There are certainly men among us, at least seven, they say, that the significance of seven, again, a complete picture of leadership to deal with this problem completely. So go ahead and find those men and then bring them to us. And as they do find those men, they then express their authority, their God-given authority upon those men to begin to serve within the fellowship to solve this problem. It was delegated. All of us serve with delegated authority because all true authority belongs to Jesus Christ. So any kind of authority that we might walk in, the authority is given to us by the Lord. So in Exodus 18, we have a time in the life and leadership of Moses among the children of Israel that was critical. He was dealing with a lot of problems. And we see the solution that God gave here in Exodus to the problems. And when you read the two, the, the, when you read Exodus 18 and what happened with Moses, and you read chapter six of Acts, what happened in the early church, it sounds very familiar. And so you have to wonder, okay, how did it work in Acts 6? How did they come up with this solution? Now, of course, one option is, is the Holy Spirit could just give it to them, just out of the blue, give it to them. This is how I want you to handle it. Do this and lay it out. And certainly that's possible, and maybe it's a combination here of what happened with the leadership. But here's what I think happened. Remember in Acts chapter 2, we learned that the early church was strong. Why? Well, in verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship and prayer and the breaking of bread. Well, the New Testament isn't written at all. There's no New Testament at all at the time of Acts chapter 6. So to continue in the apostles' doctrine, what was the apostles' doctrine? What, what was the word of God that they were using in Acts chapter 6? What was it, church? The Old Testament. The Old Testament now with their experience and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus too used the Old Testament, but they're using the Old Testament. And I believe the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance Exodus 18. So you got a problem in the church? Well, Moses had a bunch of problems himself. That's how God solved it then. And now we see a new application of it in the early church. Now let me summarize to get us to verse 13. In Acts chapter 18, Moses has been leading the children of Israel now for about a year. Separated from his wife and young children, he's been focusing on leading and guiding, except by the time we get to chapter 12, the nation is stalled, they're not making a lot of progress, and that's a problem. There's about three million people here that he is leading out, men, women, and children. And they've come to a place where they're stalled, there's a pause, and while they're staying in that area, a lot of problems arise. 
And Moses gets a visit from his father-in-law, Jethro, bringing back his wife and his kids. And they have a little conversation. This is all in the first 12 verses. They have a conversation. It's exciting. Look what God has done. Jethro, the Bible says, is a priest of Midian, which means he's a pagan priest. He's a priest over many gods. But through the testimony of Moses' son-in-law, and through the testimony of the greatness of God's work through him, Jethro gets saved and becomes a man, a God follower, and he sets aside all of his idols. And he comes in worship with, with Moses, excited about what God's doing. I mean, there's an, I know that Jesus spoke about great difficulty in our families in influencing for the gospel, but I want you to know there's also great progress. And don't be discouraged by the difficulties that are happening in your family right now, but rather continue to bring them to the throne room of God. Continue to be in prayer. Don't allow your heart to be hardened because even Jethro, this, Midian, this priest of Midian, gets saved because of the faithfulness of God through his own son-in-law and his daughter and his grandkids. So good. So pick up with me now in verse 13 and we will get the conversation between Jethro and Moses. Verse 13. So it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning to evening. So then Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people. He said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. And I judge between one and another. And I make the known statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, and you might want to mark these words, the thing that you do is not good. The thing that you do is not good. Can I just say before we get into the text, you need people in your life that can look you in the eye, observe you, and say, the thing that you do is not good. Now, I want you to understand, the thing that Moses was doing started out good. He has good motives. He wants to serve the people. He wants to help them with their problems. But what Jethro is identifying was not the heart of Moses loving people and wanting to lead them. It was the way he was doing it. And Jethro just straight up tells him, hey, what you're doing is not good. There is a better way, as we'll see in a moment. So Moses, by this time in his leadership, has set up a regular routine, and it's become now meeting early in the morning till late at night every day, hearing problems and solving them. Now, let's say conservatively there are three million people, and 10% of the people have problems, just 10%, one out of every 10. That means that he's dealing with 300,000 problems. Most of them little. Most of them little skirmishes, little difficulties, little questions. Okay, let's say not 10%, let's say 1%. One man dealing with just 1% of the population, that would be 30,000 problems. That the Bible says he was doing it alone. And when Jethro saw that, I believe inspired by God himself, he says, hey Mo, the way you're doing it, it's not right, it's not good. And let me just say, if God sends someone to you, 
in a loving way, someone that you love and care, not some random sniper on social media or something, but someone that you love and care and trust, and they have something to share with you, and they basically are saying, hey, what you're doing is not good, you will know how accurate it is by how defensive you are. Defensiveness is an indication that God has touched something very close to you. And you can just look at it for your life. And then right now you're like, Ed, I'm never defensive. All right, that's why you proved my point. That's it. That's true. It's true that we can become very defensive when the Lord wants to send us a message. Moses could have easily said, hey, where have you been for a year? How do you have any idea? Well, I've been, I got the, you should have seen before I set something up, man. This is an improvement. And yet God's going, no, I have even something better for you. Isn't that so good of God? I have something better for you. This model of leadership is an important model to understand. Moses was serving alone. He left what was important and what his calling was to take care of all these things. We'll see in a moment exactly what his calling was, but problems and difficulties, and if you choose to serve alone, will take you away from what God has called you to do. We is always the language of ministry, collaboratively and cooperatively. Moses, when he's asked about it, he tells them, when Jethro says, why are you doing this? Moses in verse 15 gives a very matter-of-fact answer. He's not defensive. I don't see defensiveness in this text. He gives a matter-of-fact, he understood who he was. I'm a leader. I'm the one God chose to lead this nation. I'm the leader. So as a leader, this is what I think I should do. And Moses says, well, it's just not good. It's not healthy. It's not God's will. Why? Verse 18. Why wasn't it good? Because both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. This thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. It's too much. Jethro, this man with wisdom, is sent to help Moses grow in his leadership and allow for us to learn now even thousands of years later that we're in this together. Moses, you can't take all the problems upon yourself. And you know, that's a word from the Lord, just even those of you that aren't in leadership, but you have a family, you have a situation, you're just taking all the problems on yourself, all the problems on yourself, but, but those aren't your problems to carry. Those aren't our problems to carry. We're to cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. And so you've got your issues, you've got your kids' issues, you've got this issue, you've got work issue, and you're walking around so burdened instead of obeying God. You can't solve everyone's problems. You can't do everything. What's the solution? Notice with me in verse 19. Okay, so we know that the direction he was going was not correct. Okay, what's the solution? Here it is, verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Can we just pause there for a second? Doesn't that sound exactly as the counsel given in Acts chapter 6? They said it's not desirable for us to leave the word of God and prayer. What does Jethro say thousands of years earlier? Stand before God with the difficulties. That's prayer. Take your situations to God and teach them. 
Those are the two things Moses was doing, and now those are two things carried on in the leadership of the apostles. And then he says in verse 21, moreover, you shall select from the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place, over them, place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. And so it will be easier for you. And they will bear, and mark this phrase, they will bear the burden with you. It wasn't designed to remove Moses from ministry. It was designed to bear the burden together. Those are words throughout the Bible. Togetherness, obedience, unity. And the solution was, Moses, you need to teach, you need to pray, you need to take care of the larger matters, but there are other men that can help you. Men that will become elders serving alongside of you. What wasn't good was the system of leadership that Moses was, was working from. What is good is God's solution. Now many people will come to this section of scripture and they will speak of the Moses model of leadership in very negative terms, very pejorative. And, and what they'll refer to is to say, you know, those that would, would serve in a Moses-type model leadership, it just is open to all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of issues. And they'll also say that it's not a God-ordained leadership structure. But that's incorrect. I'm here to show you in the Bible that not only is it a God-ordained, but it's a God-approved model of ministry. In a moment, I'm going to show you how it even carries over into the New Testament. Here's the problem that I think is trying to be addressed when someone will come and go, you know, that's wrong and you shouldn't do it that way, is that when leaders fail, it's a very painful experience for the church. And when leaders fail, it is not so much the structure, because you know, the Bible gives, in a very practical way, the Bible gives a few different ways of church government. And you can see them in different, that's not the purpose of our study today, but there are different styles of church government. You may have come from a church that has a different style of church government. There's different ones that you could make a biblical case for. Some I don't think you can make at all, but there's different styles, different ways of leading the church. This is one of them. Pastor-led, Moses model leadership. There are different ways, but I have to say, every single structure of leadership, men and women have failed in that structure. It's not the structure per se, although there are some bad structures we don't want. It's, not. it's the character of the person in leadership. It's the character. Character is everything for the men and women that God wants to use in his church. It's not competency, as important as that is. I mean, even here in Exodus 18, he says, make sure you choose men that are able. Did you notice that? Choose men that are able. That speaks of competency. Make sure they can do it. Make sure they can judge these matters. Some people wouldn't be able to, but what does all the rest it says in verse 21? They need to fear God. They need to be men of the truth. And, and then he throws in hating covetousness. And with such an important position in the infancy of the nation of Israel, heading into the promised land, hating covetousness is another way of saying, make sure these men have no ambition to rule over people. 
make sure they have no ambition to take advantage of people. He says, make sure they have a right relationship with God, love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Make sure they're men that walk in the truth, that they can be trusted. Make sure that they hate covetousness, that their motives are pure. It's the character. I mean, there's a big emphasis today about accountability. And believe me, I think accountability is important, and we should all have accountability. None of us serve alone. However, there is much too, there was far too much emphasis placed on accountability as if it's like the Savior. Like, like, like having someone come and say, if you have 10 people for accountability in your life right now, that's great, it's wonderful, I'm not against it at all. But you know, if all 10 of those people came up to you and says, how were you today? You can look them in the eye and lie to their face. How are you today? Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. I'm walking in victory. When the first six hours of your day were living in rebellious sin about the very thing they're holding you accountable to. And the problem isn't accountability, lack of accountability. And this is going to be hard for some of you, but you need to hear the truth. The problem is you and your unwillingness to have a real walk with the Lord. Because real accountability, true accountability is living a life where you know God knows all things, sees all things, he dwells in you, he brings conviction in your life, and you have a personal walk with the Lord. So it's not so much systems, it's people. And we see throughout the Bible, this model of ministry has been used effectively for the kingdom. That God raises up a man, and in some cases a woman, and then raises up people to serve alongside of them where there is a clear distinction between who the leader is, but also there's a clear distinction that everyone's a servant. One of the ways I like to describe it in the ministry here is the pastor needs to understand, kind of look at themselves as a player coach, if you use a sports analogy, where the coach has authority and direction and is gonna give direction for the team, but they also are on the field doing the same direction that they're giving where there is leadership, because God put that in our lives, but there's also servanthood. And the greatest responsibility that's given to us will only increase the amount of servanthood that comes through us. And this was the solution. Find men to help you, Moses. Delegate to them. Give them authority. Just like in the early church, how did they delegate and give them authority? In Acts 6, they laid hands on them in front of everybody and said, these are the seven men. Listen to them, trust them, and understand authority in the church. Again, that could be a whole different Bible study. Just understand authority in the church. Just understand it. All of us serve with delegated authority. None of us have absolute authority. Any authority in the church belongs to Jesus Christ, and he delegates it to competent and depth of character men and women so that we might represent him properly. Nobody stands in their own authority. Nobody stands with absolute authority over your life except for Jesus Christ. However, I have found this to be true. Where there is good, godly leadership, that is to be matched with good, godly submission. That's where cooperation comes and collaboration comes. So this model is continued in the New Testament. If you're taking notes, I'll just read a few verses. It's not just something in the Old Testament. It's not just something that was back even before the Old Covenant. It is a pattern that God has given to his church. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, 
Paul says that he had limits of the sphere that God appointed him. And so God gave him authority in a realm of ministry to lead. Again, he writes to Timothy and he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And that's where on the backside of that, that's why we talk about calling. What has God called you to do? Where has he placed you in the body? Well, Paul says, I've been a leader. I've been sent to be an apostle and a leader. Jesus himself, we learn in the New Testament, was given authority. And with that authority, he chose able men. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when it was day, the Bible says, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And from there, he chose 12. Or how about John 15? In verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And so there's leadership in choosing and appointing. The early church we have studied in depth in Acts chapter 6. This is exactly the model they followed in Acts chapter 6. Paul, later on in the New Testament, will choose Titus and Timothy and appoint them to pastor churches. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. When I urged you, uh, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, Paul says, remain in Ephesus. Timothy, this is your call. Stay there in Ephesus and pastor that church. He says the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete. Why? So that he would set things in order that are lacking. And we have examples in the scriptures. Now, another layer down of Peter and, or excuse me, of Timothy and Titus, even choosing elders as leaders. When he says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, the things that you heard from me among many witnesses Commit these to faithful men. Titus was told very specifically, I left you in Crete to appoint elders in every city. Moses is being said, told the same thing. So are the apostles telling the church in Acts 6. True ministry is always collaborative, always cooperative, but there are clearly leaders that have been given authority and responsibility to lead his church. Men and women that serve together for a common cause. And can I just pause here to make sure you understand, lest there's any confusion here, that in our service, in our spiritual Christian service, we serve Jesus Christ singularly. He is our pastor. He is our shepherd. He is the overseer of our souls. And yet in his ministry, he's established an order of leadership for his church. He's established an order of leadership for the home. He's established an order of leadership in our culture. God is not the author of confusion. And when we don't operate in the God-given roles he's given to us, confusion will abound. Chaos will take root. If Moses didn't choose this, the Bible says clearly he would wear himself out and the people would suffer. If the, early, if the apostles would have chosen, and it would have taken him away from his ministry of prayer, it would have taken away from his ministry of teaching, it would have taken him away from the leadership that God endowed upon him. And if the apostles would have made the same choice, they would have left the word, they would have left prayer, they would have taken care of the problem, but then the whole church would have suffered because they weren't doing what they were called to do. Even as we serve Jesus as we do all things as unto the Lord, 
The Bible does teach that God has ordained spiritual leadership in his church, that there is a clear chain of command in the ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, let the elders who rule well. So there are elders that are leading, key people that have been chosen. In Hebrews chapter 13, we haven't turned much. I want to show you this. Would you turn over to Hebrews 13? I love this verse because it always takes me back to California in my relationship with my pastor at Calvary Chapel in Downey. It always, two names always come up when I read Hebrews 13. My pastor, Jeff Johnson, who God placed in my life sovereignly for me, and Pastor Rudy. Pastor Rudy was a pastor that poured into my life because I served alongside of him in this children's ministry for all those years. They are my pastors. They still speak into my life. They still have authority in my life, even though in many ways I've now become a peer with them That doesn't change that God put them in my life to rule over me, to lead me, to to help me in areas that I need help. And so whenever I read Hebrews 13, 17, I just always remind, I need to text Pastor Jeff, I need to check in on him, I need to send appreciation to Rudy, because ministry's hard enough, I wanna bring a little joy into their life. And that's what it says, notice. Obey those, this is verse 17, Hebrews 13, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, because that would be unprofitable for you. So you want to bring joy. A lot of people get hung up on the obey, the obey part of this. Who I'm not going to obey anybody. Nobody can tell me to do anything. No, but God established that in your life. Somebody's got to tell you to do something. If it's sinful, or it's disobedient leadership, like, you know how the Bible says don't lord over people? You don't need to submit to anybody that's lording over you, bossing you around, acting with, apart from the spirit in the flesh. No way. However, when there's good godly leadership, you and I are commanded to obey it and to follow it for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of one another. And I love that. And Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And submission is so important. We don't want to lose sight in our service that we're co-laboring together. And it requires mutual submission. Another way of thinking of that is that we are all under authority. All of us are. Not just you, but all of us. We all have authority in our lives. And when we, speak of it, when we speak of authority, we need to remember that God desires our submission to authority in the church, in the workplace, in the home, and on and on the list goes. Now, some of you may have a few feelings on the subject because somebody's used authority to hurt you and harm you. And for that, I'm very sorry that you experienced that. It's not God's heart for you. It's not God's heart for the church to be filled with horrible leaders and horrible pastors. It's not. But it happens. Why? Because it's a revelation of the character. It's character. And you don't always know the character until you go through a few trials together and a few difficulties. So God never, ever, in a million billion years, requires you to submit to ungodly authority or harsh leadership or abusive leadership. Never, ever. And where there's abuse and pain, submission to God takes precedent. If it requires involving the authorities, involve the authorities. But you're not required to submit to abusive leadership. 
You're not under, under, God does not place you and me under obligation to just present ourselves to get hurt over and over and over again. That's very clear in the scriptures. But in order to avoid disorder, confusion, and chaos, where possible, which is most of the time, we're to respond in mutual submission. We're work together. We're on a team. We're heading in the same direction. We need to fight the right enemy, not each other. We need to know there's a real enemy and it's not each other. We need to work things out. We need to resolve conflict biblically according to Matthew 18. We need to stop identifying ourselves by the hurt and the difficulty and resolve it. Even in Philippians, Paul writes to the church and says, I know there's a couple ladies fighting. They need to resolve it. That's what he says. Resolve it. You guys need to take care of it. You can't keep disrupting the progress of the church because you're unwilling to resolve it. And the word that we emphasize here, the biblical word that we emphasize here to serve together is the word like-minded. It's a beautiful word. As we head out, let me show you. We'll turn over to Romans chapter 15. I think it gives the best definition of like-mindedness in all the Bible. The word like-minded, while you're turning there, actually comes to us from two Greek words. The Greek word for equal and the Greek word for soul. And so the picture of like-mindedness speaks of unity, harmony, agreement together. It doesn't speak of conformity, like you have to become me and I have to become you. But what it does speak of is that generally in our lives, we see things the same way and we're going in the same direction, which is most of all our relationships. None of us see everything the same, but for those closest friendships and relationships, you generally see most things the same. And then when you do disagree on them, you don't make that the essence of your relationship. You set aside minor disagreements so that you can enjoy one another. Well, it's the same in the church, except it's super significant in the church that folks look overlook. Notice with me in Romans chapter 15 in verse 5. What a great biblical definition of like-mindedness. It says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. And here's like-mindedness, that you will with one mind, you think the same, and with one mouth, you say the same, glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like-mindedness has a unity of mind, a unity of mouth, so that together we've made a conscious choice that our lives together will glorify God. That's like-mindedness. It's so much more than the practical part of it. It starts with God and it ends with God. Let me read another one to you, Philippians chapter two, verse one. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And he adds there, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And one more in verse 19 of chapter two. For I have no one like-minded, Paul says, who will sincerely care for your state. And here's the opposite of like-mindedness. For all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. And let me just say this. If anyone steps into a position of leadership and has no desire to be like-minded with the people they're overseeing, then... The opposite is what will happen. 
exactly what he says here. If, the char- if your character isn't such where you fear God, you love him, you hate covetousness, then this is what will happen. You'll be in a position of leadership, whatever structure you choose, and you will seek your own. And when you seek your own, you will hurt many people. You will find great disruption and difficulty in your life, in a life that doesn't choose first to be like-minded with God and then with like-minded people. That's why the Bible says evil company corrupts good habits. It's true. Ask anyone that did not heed that verse and they will tell you, yes, it's true. And so as we close here with the model of ministry shown to us by Moses, remember we is the language of ministry. We're in this together. It's a joy to serve Jesus together, like-minded. And I even here, as I think about it, it's a joy to serve you. It's a joy to be able to serve people around the state and around the country, to know that our church, even if we forget things that we've done in the past, God hasn't forgotten them. Even if we forget that we supported a year of school for kids in South Africa, God hasn't forgotten it. And he's using it. Kiddos are in school right now learning about Jesus from the townships because there was a like-mindedness and a glory. Well, but Ed, I wasn't a part of that. No, you actually were a part of it. Why? Because we is the language of ministry. Nobody does that by themselves. And all that God is doing is because of his faithfulness through us together, like-mindedly serving him. Amen? So good. Father, I thank you for the models you give us, the patterns you give us in the scripture that would help lead us in how to oversee and to serve your people, that would give us wisdom just like the apostles as they're faced with the problem. Their solution sounds a lot like Exodus 18. And we're grateful, God. There's just wisdom in your word. And if we can't find it in your word, you'll send somebody to us to help us see things from a different perspective from a different order. And then speak truth into our lives, speak life. Those were life-giving words from Jethro. They, they helped the nation get on track. And we are grateful that you still speak today, leading us and guiding us. And may we be faithful to follow you in Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.